My name is Richard Hill. Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. Welcome to WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, coming to you the first and third Thursday of each month. Well, we have blasted through the March barrier, and we are in April, and uh, we have a fantastic show lined up here. It's a really, really great show. I think we're going to have the entire, uh, the actual Beatles are going to be here today. <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about, uh, yeah. I'm not talking about, um, What's our friend from the uh, Agricultural Experiment Station? What's her name? <laughs> no, I'm, t I'm talking about uh, we're going to have a great show with a two fabulous guests and, of course, our wonderful, intrepid farmer up there in the White Hills of Shelton, Guy Beersley. Guy, thank you so much for starting us off with a good hearty chuckle. Well, here we are. Uh, it's, it's April. That means we've got to definitely get some planting done. we got planting going on in the greenhouses. But uh, we know we got frozen. We got freezing temperatures tonight, according to what I can understand on the radio. So, anyway, uh, we mm. haven't got too much going on outside except the garlic is above the ground, and uh, that's uh, that's looking pretty good. I'm quite glad to see all that. Uh, unfortunately, we cut off all the elderberry bushes that we had on the side of one of our greenhouses. And this recent heavy winds took the top layer of both greenhouses off. Oh, my God. And so uh, my son-in-law, Ed, has been uh, working hard to, to replace those things, get them back into position. And we got one of the greenhouses. We got uh, Janelle has done quite a bit of planting on. So anyway, things are progressing pretty well. Uh, and uh, we've uh, been, we just uh, sun last Sunday hosted a lavender class. So uh, there's some uh, lavender growers in the, in, or some would-be lavender growers in the state. And so um, Ed uh, particularly uh, took uh, most of the afternoon. We even gave him a tea uh, <clears throat> with some uh, lavender scones he had made, which were really good. Anyway, uh, lavender is, uh, looked like it came through the winter pretty well. 
and uh, we're we're really happy with that. Uh, we have lavender planted in several small pots, and then we have a larger plot, which uh, has got uh, about three years ago when we had really a very very heavy rain situation in the spring. Uh, took out a bunch of lavender plants because lavender, even though they were planted on a, a raised bed, uh, the rain was so fierce that uh, it uh, took out, uh, I guess, maybe 150 plants uh, of the 700 we had over there. Anyway, uh, things are things are looking pretty good here. I've yet to uncover all the strawberries. I uh, started to do that, and then uh, we had some freezing uh, temperatures in the morning and we got some tonight so but uh, I would normally have those strawberry plants uh, uncovered and uh, just uh, make sure that, that everything is going well with them all the uh, brambles are looking good the raspberries the blackberries the blueberries uh, coming right along and so you know we're we're anticipating a good year and so forth now, I wanted to cover a couple of points, Richard, uh, one of which is I got this, I, I get a number of organic publications, and one of which is, well, is the Organic and Non-GMO Report, which is uh, really glossy, uh, very good. It only comes out every two, once every two months, but uh, it is extremely interesting and has all sorts of departments on it and i think that people who are interested in organics would uh, would do well to uh, consider uh, getting a, I, I, you probably could go to the library and, and get these things but uh, this is a, it's got organic news non-gmo news regenerative agriculture market news and then gmo news pesticide news and then they figure it out they top all that off with what they call the bright side, try to give everybody a, a good uh, idea. You know, one of the thing, things which we should all recognize is only 1% of the agricultural land in uh, the United States is identified as organic. And uh, you would think uh, somewhere along the line it would be uh, vastly improving on that with all the interest that there is in organics but um, and it will improve but uh, it's only very very slightly and i don't know if the pandemic had, had much to do with it or not but uh, there's a, the, we do recognize that because of the pandemic that a number of people were either forced to or really wanted to get into organic eating and anyway, there is more interest in organic uh, every year, fortunately, and so that was good. Uh, there was another thing that I wanted to cover, too, is if anyone has a real problem that they can't understand, uh, that is, uh, in your own health, uh, make sure that you're not eating anything with carigen, uh, C-A-R-R-A-N-G-E-A-N-A-N. Uh, that's, that's probably not the way to pronounce it, but uh, that is a, a preservative, which is uh, if it's if you're eating it, it's bound to have some sort of detrimental effect on your health. So I would point that out. And another thing I'll point out that we use granite meal, which is not normally available in any of the stores, uh, or like the uh, Home Depot or Lowe's, uh, so forth. But granite meal which can be obtained through some 
uh, pretty decent uh, agricultural stores uh, is an excellent, excellent uh, thing that we put around all our trees. And, uh, and, and we throw, throw it on our asparagus beds and, and uh, the different brambles of, of raspberries, blueberries. and, and uh, But it doesn't take but just about a cup of that granite meal and spread around the within the, uh, the, the drip line of your tree or whatever it is you're putting around to make sure that it is really, it'll make a, a tremendous difference in the production of, of what you're trying to, uh, to get. Would that include uh, fruit shrubs as well? Yeah, absolutely. Granite meal is excellent. It's good. We don't really know completely why it's so good, but it is, um, it's got, of course, it's full of minerals, and uh, as long as it's a very, very fine, uh, it's mostly a fine powder, which comes from people making tombstones, and so they collect that, uh, the essentially granite sawdust, huh. if you want to call it that, and, uh, and uh, bag it up, and then you can get it. It's not very expensive either, and uh, it doesn't take a whole lot, but if you put one, uh, say, a, a couple of cups around a drip line of a tree and then have the same sort of tree next to it, you'll see a big difference in the production uh, without, without anything else. But uh, I just thought that the people ought to know that, uh, granite meal. And, and, and you can't get it everywhere, but uh, Fedco's got a pretty decent source of it. And uh, uh, Rodale, if you can contact them, they, would, they have a, a pretty decent uh, repertoire of where you can go to get it. But granite meal is, is really good for almost anything that you might want to put it on. And so the, the blueberries and the... And uh, raspberries and so forth, and uh, the asparagus. You know, uh, on asparagus, and I'm kind of deviating here. The <laughs> asparagus, uh, compared to other plants we put on, nearly wants a much higher pH. They like a, a pH over seven, whereas just about all the other things that we plant uh, that can live and really like a pH between six five and six eight. In some cases, lower. Potatoes will go much lower than that, and uh, of course, any bushes uh, like uh, like like things uh, <coughs> that is uh, a lower pH too. But anyway, there there is some of the information that that we have here. Uh, we're looking forward to Arbor Day, which is the third weekend in our great month of April, and uh, we'll get uh, things uh, planted. I've got peach trees, which unfortunately Stark sent to me about a month ago, uh, way too early to plant anything like a peach tree, but uh, so we've had to keep them under wraps and uh, keep the roots moist and uh, out of the sun, and uh, we'll try to get those things in the ground as soon as we can, but I can't put them in when we're going to have frost and freezing conditions. So we try to point toward Arbor Day, which is, of course, one of the better, we think is the best time of the year to plant things like trees, uh, fruit trees in particular. So, Guy, let me break in here to just to uh, tell you, uh, we haven't really t told any, anybody what we're going to be doing today other than to hear your fabulous report. So um, I just want to mention that now so people can get ready for the festivities to come. <laughs> and uh, this is the first Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, Thursday of uh, April. So we're going to have our bee man, Honey, 
a honeybee man, Vincent Kay, is going to join us in uh, five minutes or so, and he'll give his report. And um, then uh, we have a, uh, a special guest. Uh, if anybody could follow up from Vincent Kay, our next guest will, and that is uh, Dave Chapman from the Real Organic Project, which is based up in uh, Vermont. Actually, it's a national organization, but uh, Dave's farm is in Thetford, Vermont, we'll, where we will be speaking to him from. And he's going to tell us about the Real Organic Project and what some of the challenges it's faced during the, uh, the pandemic and the battles to come. And um, with this new administration, with a, a new administration, but an old, a moldy old uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom mm. Vilsack, who served for eight years under Barack Obama uh, with not much distinction. So we're going to talk to him about what we might expect for regenerative agriculture and uh, organic standards in the, uh, in the next few years. So that coming up at about 12.30, if we can squeeze it all in. And um, so that brings us up to date there. Guy, I had a question about, um, by the way, I want to mention Chris Ferrio is here, which is great. And um, What's going on, Guy? Oh, Chris, great to hear your voice, right. You always, uh, we always appreciate it when you're there. <laughs> yep. Indeed. So um, one of the qu things I wanted to ask you was, I was out trying to cut back on the brambles, not the fruit-bearing ones, but the those green, miserable, uh, <laughs> homicidal brambles. You that mean invasive species? Yeah, I guess like they're invasive. I they they pop up everywhere, and they're the the the, the uh, green. The shoots of them are are kind of a pea green, and they. Um, uh, they, they think they are. They do produce a small white flower. Yeah, they, they might be multi-flower roses. I, yeah, I think oh, they're multi-flower roses. They have, have really fierce spikes. I, I, yeah, I, th I think they're actually wild roses. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Because I, I have some in my yard, one that I cultivate, and um, yeah, they're they're mean. You don't want to encounter those. It's 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 a real problem, and we're trying to you know. Cut them back and yeah, you gotta you gotta dig them out, Richard. Oh, is that yeah? Okay. Yeah, you gotta dig them out. Uh, sometimes if they're not too big, you can pull them out. But uh, and so if <laughs> they've got a good good trunk there, you're gonna have to dig them out. Cause, yeah. Uh, they'll they'll continue to come up. It's amazing. They uh, they could be a foot under the ground, and uh, they'll still continue to. Uh, to grow and then uh, eventually they'll pop up out of the ground and then once they get into the sunlight they really get with the program right <laughs> well then you got to figure out how to dispose of of the tendrils which uh i literally um you know i think those those things have, have it in for me because uh the other day i was out there w with some uh, kind of slip-on shoes and a pair of socks <laughs> and i was working around cutting them and one of the tendrils grabbed onto my foot, wrapped itself around my ankle, and when I tried to lift my foot, my shoe came off and my and my sock my sock came off too. And then and then the bramble stabbed me in the toe. So yeah. That's how bad it is. Yeah, you need uh, serious gloves to uh, get yes. rid of those. They they'll they'll go through anything. Yeah, yeah, I'm not even sure the leather gloves I have are good enough. But another question guy is 
uh, is it too late or is this a good time to cut, to actually trim your uh, fruit shrubs? Oh, my goodness. That you should be trimming them right now if you haven't done so. Okay. So yeah, is it, definitely, absolutely. Right? But it, they could, you could start trimming those in February. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's on the late side. Yeah, and, uh, but you can get them now, absolutely. Uh, you want to get them pretty much trimmed out before the, the really growth starts, if mm-hmm. much as possible, yeah. because uh, the plant will tend to expend a lot of energy in, uh, if you haven't trimmed them out in those, spr- those sprouts that uh, you don't want to grow anyway. So uh, you want the plant to emphasize what, uh, what you want to leave and to uh, grow uh, those sprouts and the the, the, the leaves and the, and the branches that you know you're going to get something out of. Guy, I wanted to um, ask you, uh, well, for one thing, I just want to let you know my garlic is popping up. It's a nice, a pleasant That's sight. Good. That's good. Um, you did well there, Chris. And my uh, lavender, which actually I, I bought from um, I bought, bought from you guys last year, has survived the winter without any... Um, any protection. Without mostly. any protection, huh? Good yeah. show. Well, you must be down, you are down there where it's yeah, a bit it's warmer. Maybe like, we um, up here. yeah, we're, we're on the shore. I'm close to the shore. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, you mentioned uh, carrageenan. Uh, now, I think it's used as a thickener, and you'll find carrageenan in all kinds of products. Yeah, but uh, it is not good for you. Not at all. Yeah, and actually, I, I just kind of looked, and I see that um, Cornucopia Institute has a, um, you could go to that website, Cornucopia, I believe it's cornucopia.org. Right, yeah, And uh, they That's have some they... information about carrageen and talking yeah. about all yeah, the... Yeah, they um, had a very good article on it some months ago. Yeah, but it's in uh, all kinds of products like salad dressings and um, probably in... in uh, jam, you know, preserves and that kind of thing. So you have to really look, but I see it in all kinds of prepared products. Yeah. If, anyway, it would be if you could look at your production, uh, look in the ingredients before you make a purchase. If it's there, try to find something that you want in that neighborhood that does not have any carrageenan in it. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like trying to find something without high fructose corn syrup. It's yeah, very, very well, difficult. Right. But you're, you're better off nowadays than we used to be with the uh, high fructose corn syrup. My goodness. Yeah, but everybody saw they finally got the picture there and uh, have reduced the, the number of times that you're going to see that as an ingredient. Yep. Okay, so, good. Uh, all right, so um, what else I want to say? Um, yeah, so it was nice to see that garlic popping up like the um, first sign of spring. Yeah, well, for, for uh, get about uh, six inches high and then side dress it a little bit. Okay, yeah, it's, they're actually popping up through the, um, like, a foot, about a foot of leaves I piled on them when I planted them, so. Yeah, that's good. And what kind of leaves did you have? Uh, all, whatever was in the yard, basically. Um, and, you know, if it, oak leaves are not particularly great, uh, but um, almost all the rest of them are. Maple leaves are really good. Yeah, I have a, uh, I'm not sure, not all of them came from my yard, but uh, <laughs> I, I, um, but yeah, I don't think, I, I don't have any, there are no oak trees around, so. Yeah, that's good, that's good. Not, but, they, you know, leaves are leaves, and so uh, oak are not quite as good as uh, some, but maple are much better, if you could uh, emphasize them. 
Yeah, well, usually I just uh, I put in whatever I have, you know. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. And the garlic is looking good. I suspect that you don't have any brown tips on them. They're all no, nice no. tips, right? Yeah, they're all bright green, so. Oh, that's way great way to go. Way yeah. to go. And I did I did notice uh, some of my um lettuce survived the winter too and without being covered either. Well, so. how about that? How about any onions survive or did you? Uh, no, I I never survive? I never grew onions. I've never grown onions. Because uh, you could plant onions in the down where you are. You could plant onions in the fall, and uh, just uh, and you really don't even have to worry much about them. Uh, and in the spring, you'll see them sprout up. Sprout up. Ours are sprouted up now six, seven inches. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and of course, they can stand a, a frost. Uh, they can almost stand a freeze, but. Uh, they, you know, but nevertheless, uh, they will give you a really good onion as long as you can keep them a little bit weeded, uh, mm-hmm. and um, and you might could give them a little side dressing. Uh, right now would be fine if you well you don't have any onions, but uh, anybody yeah. that does have onions, uh, <laughs> they they do overwinter pretty well down here unless you get to the northern part of the state, and then they're not that uh, they just won't winter that well. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe we have our guest, right? Correct. Uh, Vincent Kay has just joined us, and uh, Vincent is the owner of Plows into, no, Swords into Plows. <laughs> you always struggle with that. <laughs> I don't know why your business is such a success with such a complicated name. But swords into Plowshares, honey. And uh, Vincent, it's always a delight to have you with us. So. I'm just going to well, say, thank you, Richard. Ta- likewise, and hello, Chris, and hello, Guy. Hey, hey Vincent. Hey, Vincent. I bet your garlic is looking good, Vincent. We've got a lot of garlic, but some of the weeds came up with it. So, uh, well, that's probably we, true. <laughs> we we do mulch with straw, and you know, it's it's a uh, it's you got to know your man when you uh, or or person, I would say, uh, when you're buying straw because you can get stuff that's full of weed seeds, or you can get some nice clean straw. This year we did pretty good, though. Um, did you last did fall. you? Uh, sh- uh, chop your straw up, or just put it on. Uh, we do not. We put it on by hand. Um, we just shake it loose, and um, it's uh, it's cut when they bale it um, to about a medium length, um, so it's not too long and stringy. But yeah. we also put um, tomato steaks down on it to keep it from blowing off. We've had good, a couple of good. years years ago where we lost half of the straw, uh, you know over. Over 80 bales flew into the ether somewhere because we didn't weight <laughs> right, it down right. like paperweights. And um, this, you know, so this year we'll probably start taking this, the stakes off of it. Usually, when we can distinguish the rows, and uh, we'll probably start taking that off. You know, some off one of the fields, maybe even tomorrow. But we've got to look at the forecast and see what kind of wind we've got coming up because it can. Uh, it's a tricky time of year, and it's. It uh, is. It's, uh, you know, things hang on getting back to the bees. You know, you have hives that have, have done well all winter, although the cluster may be getting a little smaller because, uh, you know, those bees on the outside edge of the cluster in that hive have been dying off all winter. And that's their job. Unfortunately, um, they're keeping the center of the cluster warm. And uh, now it's the queen's turn to start uh, engaging uh an egg pattern and, and start having new new bees hatch out and take the place of um, the ones that have died off. And that's what will keep the cluster size. So sometimes you'll see um, the cluster size reduce and then bounce back. Um, you don't want the, too much warm weather because the queen will overlay the pattern 
or her pattern of eggs will will uh, extend out beyond uh, the size of the cluster. Um, therefore, they can't like birds; they can't sit on all the eggs. So you'll end up with some uh, some death there with uh, some of the larvae. But um, so far, the weather has been pretty good. It's been steady. Uh, we don't want anything too too warm too early. Uh, because it pushes, you know, uh, buds and, and everything else um, uh, into a growing stage, which then, of course, we still are going to have frost. I mean, that's just part of New England. And it's the same thing with insects. You don't want things to get too far advanced in maturity of, of uh, size or, or numbers because, uh, again, they can't keep the inside of that hive warm. Um, and so uh, it's better to wait a little bit longer. Um, again, they have to keep the inside of that hive anywhere from, you know, 80 to 95 degrees now at the center of that cluster. And uh, they do that by consuming honey or whatever you have left them, um, sugar syrup or whatever. Um, we leave them honey, and they've got plenty of it. We've In a couple of warm days, we've poked our heads in. We've taken the lids off of the hives, and, um, you know, they have queens, and there's a small egg pattern about the size of your fist, and that's about what they should be right now. And, and the the clusters of bees are anywhere from a softball to a football in a really strong hive, and um, and that's that's pretty good right now. It's just the main thing is to have them not run out of food because they are consuming a lot of food in order to generate that heat inside the hive. So beekeepers beware of that. Uh, I've also noticed uh, <laughs> out in the suburbs are on our way to uh, some of the more rural bee yards that. Uh, a lot of bird feeders are bent over, um, you know, the poles that they're extended up on. So the bears are out roaming around um, uh, invading uh, bird feeders. And, uh, of course, you know, we've, we've, with all the wind we've had, we've had to check uh, our electric fencing. Um, uh, almost every storm uh, we, we do a, a circuit around. Uh, we drive uh, east as far as Westbrook and then west as far as Oxford. We have bee yards. And so we... Uh, make sure all the solar electric fencing is working because uh, it only takes one night and a bear can just devastate 20 or 30 hives. It just knocks them over and they'll all die. So it's uh, the, the fences don't hurt the bears, um, but they do train the bears to uh, to, to uh, respect the parameter. <laughs> so uh, and, uh, did you have any invasions or, or any just die-offs of beehives this over the we winter? Do. We, get, we get a certain percentage um, that bees do, do um, die during the winter. Um, like I, I think I mentioned it in one of our previous shows that, um, or, or segments that um, I think because of the heat last year, we had over 70 days of 90-degree heat, and this increased the um, cycle of the mites that affect and, and, and kill the hives these parasitic mites, and that in itself um, put the mites into a, uh, a third and even a fourth generation. So we wow. had a lot more mites than we usually do, and so we've seen the mites. We, we, whenever we lose a hive, we go in and just do like an autopsy. We take some of the dead brood out of the cells, and we examine them with a magnifying glass, and you can actually see the mites inside the cells incubating with feeding on the larva. So that's how many there were last year. I mean, we've never seen anything like it. So we had, did lose bees, and uh, we've got them, you know, ordered, and, you know, we'll be soon replacing them. Um, we still have bees as well, 
but um, you, you really need to treat with miticides at certain time of the year, obviously when you're not producing honey for human consumption because some of the some of the mite strips are are uh, you know have chemicals in them and some are more natural, but you know they work and then they don't work, it seems like. So you have to go back and forth between different products and time it just right when the mites are available to receive the you know the effects of the miticide. So without that, you just really um, are wasting your money now because the mites are here and they're here to stay. And um, it's unfortunate, but, the, you know, international travel moved them into the country about 30 years ago, and um, it's never been the same since. I was very glad to have experienced beekeeping before it all went this way. But um, now, unfortunately, um, you know, it's just part of beekeeping um, uh, as well as monitoring for other diseases. But the mites are the big one. Just, just horrible, what they can do. That's really discouraging, uh, and uh, it, you know you, it is. But I mean, if you once you get into the system of it and you, you understand what the bees need, then um, it, it works. It works, and you know, as in any kind of animal husbandry, Richard, that you know there's certain things you need to do. Um, you know, feeding. Uh, you know, it may be, you know, an animal or a bird might get sick or they need antibiotics or they need this or that or a different kind of diet, something. And once you know the kind of arsenal or the tools that you need to uh, have healthy bees, then um, it, it works. And, and so sometimes the mites change or sometimes the diseases change a little bit. So you have to adjust. So yeah. that's just when, it, when beekeepers just have to be aware that it's a, a thing in progress, you know. So in any event, um, we have bees, and um, right now um, they're bringing in pollen. Uh, unfortunately, not on a day like today. It's just way too cold out there. Um, but yesterday we saw them bringing in kind of a, you know, a, a light green, yellowish pollen, which is probably pussy willow or skunk cabbage. Um, the maples are in bloom, and the birches are in bloom. So they'll bring in a little bit of nectar from those, but mostly pollen, um, which again is the protein they need to feed the young larva. Again, there's two, two food groups. There's the carbohydrates and the proteins, and the pollen is the protein, and the carbohydrates are the nectars or honey. So those are the two, two food groups that the bees need to survive. Yeah, the, the, getting back to the mites, as, as little as I would like to do that, but um, when the, the mitigation for that is, you, you said that there are, sort of natural ways of dealing with it? Do, do, do you know what's in that formulation? Well, there's, you know, again, there's always going to be a percentage of uh, mites that you knock down. I mean, there's, you know, kind of essential oils, and there's different things that, you know, are less effective than the miticides that are more chemical-oriented. Um, my feeling is to just kind of like, you know, get it over with and try to get as many mites off of the bees as possible so that they're healthy, so that they can produce a honey crop and they can produce healthy bees going into the winter. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't think um, we really have an answer to the, the question, um, Richard. It's just um, different substances work at different times. Um, and certain people have tried to do it organically, and um, I don't think with much success. Um, although, you know, you can, I may stand corrected, and I would certainly honor anyone who tries it, but I think at some point the mites will, in that area, uh, rise to the occasion. And, I mean, there's always a secluded spot in the country where maybe the mites don't exist yet. 
but it's it's kind of not really that um, available, you know. Vincent, it sounds like um, it is kind of a challenge, though, trying to kill the mites and not harm the bees. Well, yeah, you can imagine a pharmaceutical company coming up with a company, a substance that would, it, it's pretty mild, <laughs> whatever it is, but you can think about, you know, not harming an insect like a honeybee, but trying to kill a mite. But if you don't kill the mites, the mites will kill your bees. And I always tell beekeepers, young beekeepers who are just getting started, that dead bees don't produce honey. I guarantee you that. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm there's so- certain things that even organic farmers use in the form of minerals and, and, and heavy metals and different things to combat certain diseases, and you have to use them. I mean, when you, when you need to use them, and, uh, and you do, and, and, and you, you, you do well by doing that. I mean, uh, uh, the main thing is not to, to poison the honey or the bees or the environment and, yeah, and to try to do it as organically as possible. You know, we try not to hurt the bears, and we don't. But I'm just saying there's there's things you can do, but <laughs> there's always going to be that bear that gets under the wire and tackles your hives and you know, makes a mess of it all. And there's always going to be that, you know, those mites that you don't get with uh, any kind of treatment. And that's why life continues in, in the mite cycle as well. And uh, w- would you say mites are uh, one of the, um, like a large part of bee die-off in terms of your experience? I, I, I would. I would say it's probably the most important thing right now that beekeepers face in keeping their hives healthy. It's, uh, there's a number of viruses associated with the mites that also infect the bees. It's, it's, it's just, um, it's insidious. And um, it's like being covered with ticks. You know, it's, it's the same kind of parasitic um, function that these, these little critters have. They just attach themselves to the bees and they suck the white blood right out of them. And it's just horrible, but that's that's what happens. And, uh, you know, your hive can have hundreds and tens of thousands of mites inside that with the bees. So you have to do something because the, the hive is not going to live. You know, right. And it won't, the, even, it won't even live one season. Right. And the, bee, and, and the bees don't have any natural defense against them. Correct. There is some research being done on hygienic behavior where mites, I mean, where the honeybees will groom the mites off of them. But. Uh, there's been sort of uh, mixed results in trying to hybridize bees to have that behavior as part of the, you know, something that the industry can use uh, and start, you know, uh, uh, making available to, to beekeepers who want to keep bees. So it's, it's, it's a problem. It's a, it's a real problem. And uh, that's, what, that's where we stand. And that's how fragile um, some of the uh, insects like honeybees are. Uh, in in this world right now, and um, if you would say that the, the honeybees are the canaries in the coal mine for a healthy environment and the production of our food supply, I would say they are, and um, they're really right now not in a good way um, for a number of factors. And this is also, uh, I always at this time of year see all of the trucks driving around with uh, the chemicals for the people's lawns, etc. And this is a big part of you know, having a healthy environment of, of, of trying to not use those chemicals and to, you know, try to have an organic lawn where you have clover and dandelions and, and uh, you know, your pets and children are safe and, and your well water, et cetera, because this stuff does leach into the ground and, uh, and, and stays there. Um, so if you cannot use it, you're better off. I would say if we could not use the miticides, 
we would all be better off, but right now we can't, and we have to use those. But um, certainly with lawns and, and, and vegetable gardens and stuff like that, you can definitely do it organically, you know, and it's, uh, it's great. So, Vincent, um, we have a tight schedule here today, but uh, it's always uh, great to talk to you. I imagine that in the next two or three weeks you're going to kind of turn a corner in terms of what goes on in your, uh, you know, making the rounds from from your wide well, range of pies. I would say in the next, the next time we talk, we will either be uh, literally loading bees on trucks to ship into the orchards for pollination, which we do as part of the business. So we do some of the large commercial orchards in the state. And um, it helps the bees, I feel. Um, the bee hives always come out better looking and with more bees, and they're heavier. So I know that they have a lot of food that they gather uh, while they're in the orchards. And then uh, they'll stay there for about two weeks, and then we bring them back, and then we set up for honey production. So, uh, but yes, that that'll be the next uh, segment that uh, hopefully we'll we'll uh, share with you guys. Yeah, that's that would definitely be uh, counting the days until that. So Vincent K, uh, proprietor of uh, Swords into Plowshares Honey, uh, and a fantastic business that uh, somehow, with a very uh, <laughs> I guess Streamline Crew manages to uh, uh, survive and thrive, even in this uh, stressed world that we live in now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. Take care, Guy, and take care, Chris. Thanks, Vincent. Vincent, thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right. Well, let's turn immediately to our next guest, and that would be Dave Chapman, who is uh, the... uh, one of, I guess, the owner or manager of Longwind Farm in Thetford, Vermont, and he is also one of the leaders of the Real Organic Project, which is, uh, I know it has a lot of constituency up in Vermont, but it's also a national organization. Um, Dave, you've been with us before, and I think a lot of people know who you are and what your mission is, but for those few who don't, um, could you just briefly describe what your mission is, uh, the Real Organic Project, as the name implies, uh, apparently has a bone to pick with the USDA and the definition. And really trying to promote uh, real organic farming as a solution to a, like a host of challenges that we face. And, um, yeah, I agree that the USDA has uh, failed in their in their mission to uh, support support organic in terms of ensuring just integrity and transparency for what what eaters are are able to buy under that label, uh, there's a lot of good stuff done under the USDA organic label, but there's also some some serious uh, instances of failure. And uh, basically, we were formed by a group of farmers, um, and you know, farmers and leaders and scientists and and uh, authors and journalists, uh, all who saw that there was uh, really kind of a, a tragic failure going on where at a time where agriculture, sane agriculture, is being so important to uh, all citizens, whether or not they chose to buy organic, there's still benefits that people get from good agriculture. Um, and the leadership role that that the organic movement has earned was being 
seriously tarnished by the by the failures of the National Organic Program. So, a group of farmers got together and um, basically started an add-on label to the to the uh, USDA seal. And um, so, people who are certified with Real Organic Project must also be USDA certified. And um, it's good. It's going well. We got about. Uh, uh, 450 farms certified at the moment, with another 350 who have applied and been approved, but uh, they're pending their inspection visit this summer. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll get to a thousand farms by by Christmas. We'll see. <clears throat> so that you're, you're creating sort of a, a separate track of farms that uh, comply with stricter standards or what you would consider to be real organic standards? Yeah, in many cases it's actually just just that they comply with the standards that exist, <laughs> but that the USDA is not actually requiring some of these. I, this, this ultimately is coming down to um, industrial, industri we call it industrial organic, that has come <laughs> in, and these are large multinational corporations um, and they're bending the rules for profit, and um, it's it's how you know parts of government often work. And USDA is famous for being, um, you know, very very supportive of industrial agriculture. So we had hoped that, and it was intended that the organic program would be a genuine alternative to that. But and it began that way, and they're still. The majority, the vast majority of farms certified by that program are real organic farms. But um, these these relative handful of huge corporate farms are, in fact, dominating the economic landscape. And as a result, they're also dominating the regulatory landscape. Because when somebody who runs a $2 billion company gets up and says something to the Secretary of Agriculture, they get a very careful hearing. Mm -hmm. So, what are the, uh, the the flaws in what this industrial organic sector is doing? What what how are they <coughs> breaking uh, the initial mission of USDA Day Organic, and uh, what what needs to be changed there? Yeah, so it's happening in in three three um, big areas. And um, one area is with livestock rearing, and um, real organic uh, farming involves animals that uh, live out on pasture uh, whenever uh, the weather allows there to be pasture. And um, right now, dairy is being dominated by confinement operations. Uh, I'm going to use the word CAFO, C-A-F-O which means concentrated animal feeding operation. It's a USDA term. And a, a CAFO means that the animals are all confined and the food is brought from far, far away and fed to them, and the animals never basically leave the dining room. And um, CAFO livestock rearing has become the norm in American agriculture, Can just conventional chemical agriculture. That is the norm now. It's a very profitable way, an efficient way 
of producing meat, milk, and eggs as long as um, you ignore a lot of unintended consequences that, that you don't pay for at the cash register, but you do pay for at the doctor, you know, you pay for as the climate is changing, you pay for as the water is polluted, uh, you pay for as the air is befouled. Um, so there are a lot of problems with confinement agriculture, but it is the norm. And organic was the alternative to that norm. And um, and, and and let me just say, it's not it's not that you know uh, conventional farmers are villains. It's that the economic landscape forces them into this kind of farming. It's an important distinction. It's not like, oh, God, we have bad people. No, we have a bad economic system. And and it sort of mandates farming in that way if you want to stay in business. Because if you're competing with somebody whose cost of production is lower, as oh. and all of that, then you can't you can't compete with them in the marketplace. Organic was a place where you could compete because uh, people go to the organic label understanding that they are willing to pay for food that's grown differently, that food that has a different quality, food that uh, has a more beneficial impact on our environment, on our society. And, you know, it was a genuine alternative. You saw a lot of small dairy farms flourishing as a result of the organic label. But that's all shifting now because uh, you've got you've got over half of the milk now being produced in CAFOs. And so those small farms that are pasturing their animals are really struggling, and often they cannot survive. They're, they're going out of business. In poultry, it, it happened 10 years ago that most of the um, family-scale operations where chickens still had access to the outdoors every day, and not just access, not just a a little door in a massive wall, but actually went outside. Um, they're all been put out of business. And you can get really cheap so-called certified organic eggs now in Walmart, and they're not, uh, in my mind, organic. They're not organic in the mind of anybody in the organic movement. But um, legally, they've been able to pull this off, and that's a long story. But in, the, in any case, um, until we can change the laws, which is going to take a while. Um, how do we find the food that we want? How do we support the kind of agriculture that we want? That's the purpose. Uh, well, Dave, we actually uh, are li literally uh, six minutes away from the end of our show, so I mm -hmm. just want to get a couple of things on the boards here that maybe you can address. One would be, of course, the hydroponic uh, production of uh, what is labeled sure. as USD organic. And yeah, so, so why don't we start the there? There are two other legs um, that are serious failures of the National Organic Program. Another one is that they're now certifying on a massive scale um, the soilless production of berries, tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, greens, uh, basil, and they're being grown hydroponically, uh, which is crazy that you would call that organic. But um, they they are the USDA has said no we're we're supporting that, and um, and then the third thing that's happening is is uh, massive imports of fraudulently certified grain from Eastern Europe. Uh, all of these things have been covered by the New York Times or the Washington Post. 
they're they're quite well documented um and you know there's a battle going on for what does it mean what does organic mean what should it mean and there's a similar battle going on for what does regenerative mean but that's a conversation for another day but um i think that that you know what organic means is pretty important to people we want to have the choice to buy that food one thing i would say is you know, I was talking to a grain farmer from uh, Montana uh, last week, and and he said, you know, i got to say out in Montana uh, with the grain farmers, uh, there's not much impact when we talk about hydroponic. And I said, well, you know what, Bob, when we talk about grain fraud in Vermont, there's not much impact among the vegetable farmers. They go, well, that's too bad. But the truth is we're all connected. We're all part of this food system. And when we have fraud in one part, the whole thing starts to stagger. So those grain farmers should care about the certification of hydroponics, and those vegetable farmers should care about the grain fraud. And, um, and of course, the grain fraud just props up the, the CAFO production of the meat, milk, and eggs because they're now paying a very low price for this so-called organic grain that isn't. And that means they can drop their price, which means it even strengthens their ability to put the actual pasture-raised animal farms out of business. What is the uh, linchpin of that uh, grain fraud, as you refer to it? So, is this, in other words, is this something that it, where the grains are not being inspected as they come into this country, or is there something else at play? There, there are two things that really contribute to the grain fraud. One is where farms will get like 100 acres certified and then run a couple thousand acres of grain through that label. And the other is where they just change the paperwork on the ship. And so they're just buying or, uh, conventional grain, and it gets loaded up, and by the time it gets to you know the port of entry, it's now organic grain. And you know, this is organized mob activity. You, you know, we're up against organized crime here. They're big, they're powerful, they're good at it. And, you know, they fly under the radar. Congress has voted millions of dollars to stop this. The USDA has so far not acted at all. They're, they're still working on a plan several years later. So uh, I don't know why <laughs> they're so slow to act, but I know they haven't solved the problem yet. Mm. And, and, you know, so that's where we're at. So, uh, Dave, I just wanted to ask you, um, so when grains come in like that, do they get inspected by USDA? Uh, not necessarily at all. Um, you know, if there was serious investigation, just of the paperwork, they would be stopped at, at, at the port. The people who certified them would be decertified. The certifiers would be decertified. There's lots of ways in which the USDA can take action. Um, you know, uh, the USDA decides whom they trust to, to certify products around the world. If somebody proves to be unreliable, they can simply be have their their rights revoked. It's just not happening. So, um, I I don't know why. You, you know, famously, Peter Wierski, the writer for the Washington Post, who did a front page story on this, and somebody said to him, "Well, it must have been quite hard to." to catch this fraudulent grain shipment. He said, no, actually, it was quite easy. <laughs> you know. So why why is it not happening? I don't know. Dave, in the last minute that we have, could you just comment on 
what you expect to happen with this new uh, administration, the Biden administration, and his pick for uh, Secretary of, Ag of Agriculture, uh, Tom Vilsack, who we uh, know from his uh, rather undistinguished um, performance during the Obama administration for eight years. But what, yeah. what's, what's, what's going to happen in the next few years? You know, the National Organic Program um, w fell to its knees during his administration. It was during his eight-year tenure that, that the fraud became unbearable, in my opinion. Um, so, uh, yes, things got worse under Sonny Perdue, under, under President Trump's uh, administration, but things were pretty bad to begin with. I think, I guess we'll see if, if uh, Mr. Vilsack wants to truly make amends and, and truly change things in the USDA, at least as far as the um, National Organic Program goes, well, that would be a wonderful, a wonderful step forward. So far, he said that, but he hasn't done anything. And he didn't do anything then. So we'll see. You know, uh, we can hope. Dave Chapman, uh, could you give us a contact uh, point for your organization? And uh, Sure. Yeah. People can go to um, realorganicproject.org, and that's our website. Uh, you know, one big word, realorganicproject.org. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff there. There's a wonderful symposium that people can... Uh, attend. It's free for students and farmers, and it's 45 bucks for everybody else. But it's it's five sessions of tremendous people. We've got you know everybody: Al Gore, Vanda Nashiva, Shelley Pingree, Dan Barber, Alice Waters, and many great farmers. Elliot Coleman. Um, so it's it's very engaging, very interesting examination of why we exist, what these issues are, and what we might do about them. Thank you so much, Dave Chapman from uh, Longwind Farm in Thetford, Vermont. For the Organic Farm Stand, Chris Ferriero, Guy Beardsley, myself, Richard Hill. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And we'll be back in uh, on April 15th with more great programming. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dave. All right. Thanks, all. Bye-bye. Because if you don't have it, what good is having wealth? Well, I can tell by the look in your eyes, baby.